So, Heavenly Father, we beseech you that you would be with us, help us to think through work, our professions, um, in a godly way, in, in uh, understanding the biblical framework for these things. Um, be with us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so uh, let me read the quote at the very top by Dorothy Sayers, famous British uh, uh, Christian writer. She says, who can care about a religion that has nothing to say about nine-tenths of your life? Um, that's quite a percentage. So, yes, uh, we absolutely need a robust theology that integrates faith and work. Because if, if Christianity only has relevance on the evenings and on the weekends, and it has nothing to say to what we do the majority of our lives, it is indeed an irrelevant religion, right? Um, but it does not. And let me begin by talking about modern attitudes towards work. And I would sort of categorize them into three. Um, the first is that work, we think, we conceive of it as toil and drudgery. Um, the image that, that really made a huge impression on me when I was a kid growing up was watching the movie Joe versus the Volcano. If you've ever seen the movie, it's, it's one of the Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan um, duo movies, romance movies. And in the movie, Tom Hanks works in this factory and it's this completely drab, um, dreary place to work. Everyone's like dragging their feet, right? And and everything is like the colors are bleached out, and it's this terrible um, drudgery. Its work is monotonous. It's unstimulating. It's unsatisfying. And I think a lot of us have this attitude where basically you sort of endure work and you live for the weekend, right? And you only feel alive when you're not working, right? When you're fine, like it's so, basically you begrudge every minute that you're at work, you play a game with yourself where you look at your clock, your watch, you'll say an hour later, but then it's, you look and it's 10 minutes later. And as soon as the clock ends, you're out of there, right? So that's one um, work is toil and drudgery. The second attitude, closely related, is that work is a kind of necessary evil, where you're basically working for money. And so that the only reason why you really work, the only reason is to make money, pay your expenses, support your family. And if that's your attitude, then pay becomes your highest consideration. And if you have like an array of jobs or a spectrum of jobs that you're thinking about, you're not thinking about meaningfulness of the job or your fitness for the job, you're really looking for the highest pay. And you'll accept the highest paid job. And if another job comes along that offers a significant pay bump, you'll take it regardless. The problem with that attitude is that work, you know, already work is toil and drudgery. You sort of think of it like that, that you would only think of it in terms of money. But then work becomes compounded, it becomes even more soul-sucking and even more deeply satisfying. Um, there's been a lot of uh, studies looking at this. It's called uh, motivational crowding out. So if, if, if money becomes your highest motivation, it crowds out all the other motivations in your life. Um, the inner motivations, you, you know, the thought about social consciousness or social good, um, the, the, the actual meaning of the work, and... <clears throat> Money becomes the only thing. And what you end up doing is you just dream about retirement. You dream of the day when you can save enough money, finally you can quit your job, never do that again, and now you can, you're, you're happy. Um, what always reminds me of this is the day Christina quit her New York law firm. The managing partner called her into the office. I came with her because right, I had, I had uh, Judah with me. And so I just sat in the lobby, but the door was open, so I could overhear the conversation. I said, oh, this will be really interesting to hear the pitch. Why, Christina, should you stay in this law firm? And he said to her, I'll never forget it, he said, where, are you, where else are you thinking of going? Because you know you'll never get paid as much as you're getting paid right now. And then he just went on and on. He's like, you know, like other places, nowhere pay, pays as much as we do here. Why would you want to go anywhere else? I was like flabbergasted. I was like, is that your only pitch? You obviously don't know Christina, what motivates her, um, because he didn't talk about other things like camaraderie, meaning of the work, um, and so forth. And so those two are closely related. The third is completely 
on the opposite spectrum. So if we could think of this, right, as work as underappreciation, right, we would put work as drudgery and work only for money. And then on the other spectrum, we have overappreciation. So we have two kinds of pathologies. So when I'm talking and writing, I lose it. Grace, how do you do it? How do you write simultaneously mm-hmm. and, <laughs> and talk? Okay, so work as overappreciation. Um, here we put work as identity. So that leads to workaholism, right? Where work becomes how you measure your significance, how you know that you're special, that you have worth, right? It, and, and sort of that mentality is when you go to your high school reunion, right, and you sort of compare your professional achievements, you feel this surge of pride that you have some amazing or impressive-sounding profession, and you feel like you've lost the game of life if you don't have anything impressive to say. Um, and just like when you just work for money, if you work for identity, ironically – work no longer becomes enjoyable because it becomes this endless striving for achievement. Right? You have to be successful. You have to. And, and failure at your work becomes traumatic because it's not just failing at work. It's, it's, it's an assault on your identity, on your meaning. And work becomes compulsive. Work becomes addictive. It's workaholism. And a key sign that you have this sort of mentality about work is that your life becomes unbalanced. So that you, ne- you neglect your family, you neglect your health, you neglect your friends. Um, it becomes all-consuming. And I think here in the Bay Area, this is a lot of the way we work, right? We overappreciate. It becomes our identity. Um, these are all pathologies. Uh, these are all maladies. And so I think, what does the Bible have to say? And I think we need to recover a biblical theology of work. And let me uh, uh, point you to Genesis 2. We have to go back to the, to the creation account. The creation account spans two chapters, Genesis 1 and 2. And the Genesis 2, it sort of concludes the six days of creation, the seventh day of rest. This is what it says. Thus, the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them, right? So God creates the, the universe. Listen, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. This is the first time the word work appears in the Bible. And the, uh, one of the conventions of Hebrew narratives is that any time a significant word appears for the first time, um, it's very significant how it appears, in what context, because it tells you um, uh, the meaning of that word, right, or the, or the purpose or the paradigm for that word. Um, it also works with dialogue. So anytime you meet a significant character in the Bible, the first words that they say, that defines who they are. That's sort of the conventions of Hebrew narratives. So here we encounter the word work for the first time. And we learn two things about it immediately. We t- it tells us, first of all, who God is. God is a laboring God. And it tells us what work is. Work is something that God does. Um, this is remarkable especially especially if you compare it to all the uh, surrounding ancient accounts and mythologies about creation. So if you look at Mesopotamian Greek mythology, uh, without any exceptions, the gods never work. It's always human beings who work. And sort of the image that you should have in ancient mythology is like the gods are like the paying patrons of a country club, right? And they're all, they're sitting there in their lounge chairs, they're sipping drinks, they're relaxing, and human beings are the help. Human beings are scurrying around and they're doing this slavish toiling to serve the gods so that, so that you relieve the gods of, of their responsibility, of their labor, right? So that they could have leisure. So that in all ancient mythologies, and you gotta think about this, right? The ancient world is not like the Bay Area where you know, you can sort of pursue a career that fits you, that's meaningful, right? The ancient world is you have a station in life. And a lot of the work that you do is very difficult, strenuous, agricultural, manual work. So it makes a lot of sense 
that the ancient world thought of work as a slavish toil. The ideal world is a place of unending le- leisure and relaxation in which there is no work. And so then, therefore, work is toilsome, it's grueling, and it's exploitative. Because there's always somebody at the top who's um, living off of your work. So that you have the ruling class, the elite, the leisure class. They sit, they, they think deep thoughts, you know, while everyone does the work. That's the ancient mentality for work. And if you think about it in that context, you have to realize how radical the biblical worldview is in contrast. It is 180 degrees different. So if you look at the biblical account of creation, what do you see? You see God working, but the way God's work is described is you see him as an artisan, right? The, 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 the days of creation, right, his creative acts, if you look at it, the tone, the tenor of it, it's filled with delight and love. And so this is very important because it could have been that God created the world with a single command, a verbal fiat, and then the world came to be. Um, but it doesn't happen that way. And a very important verse is Genesis 1, verse 2. It's not in, the, it's not in your thing, so let me write it down. Let me just write it. It says, so the first verse is, uh, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then the second verse, it says, the earth was without form and void. Okay? This is very significant. Because what does it tell us? It tells us that when God created the world, he created the world so that there's just raw material. Right? Without form and it's void. And the image is that God is at his workbench. And he has this lump of clay. And he's like shaping it. He's forming it. He's, he's making it. Or another image is that the world is this empty canvas, and God has his paintbrush, and he's creating this beautiful artistry, this tapestry, so that through the six days of creation, right, the ways the six days are created is you have one, two, three, four, five, six. Um, the first three days, God creates a separation of light and day, uh, waters and sky, uh, water, oceans and land, and then on the second set of days, he creates the creatures that fill these sort of um, palettes, right? So there's like this structure and there's this beauty to it. And notice that at at, at each point, he steps back. At the end of each day, he sort of looks at what he's done and he takes delight in it. And then he says each time, he exclaims, it is good, right? He delights in his own creation. And so what do you see? The portrait of God is that, of his work, is that he's, it has the passion of an artist. Do you guys see that? Um, welcome. Don't, don't, don't be, uh, don't let us embarrass you. So, uh, we are, where are we in the handout? Are we in the, I don't even have the handout. I just have my notes. No, no, we're not there yet. So we're right before Imago Dei. Do not look at Imago Dei. Okay, right? So the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that God is this artisan, right? He's this creative, he's, he's a creative person. He's, he's a, he, and he had the medium is the physical world. And therefore, what does this tell us? It tells us that work is not something that is cursed or undesirable, but what? It flows out of the character and being of God, that work describes an essential part of God of who God is so that we could not know who is this God unless we saw him work right there's that old adage right you you know the artist through his work the same with our creator God and so we see he's a creative God he's a passionate being who delights to create so that the world is neither a leisure resort in which the gods relax on lounge chairs and the humans do the slavish toiling, n- nor is the world a labor camp <laughs> where you know we're just all oh, human beings are working. But the way God created work is that the world is this blank canvas, and sort of the, to create beautiful art. And the image that I have is it's like 
um, the world is this giant pile of Legos. And my kids are huge into Legos, so they sit down and they're constructing creations, these beautiful things. That's what the, the depiction of work is. Um, Julie, can, I'm like sweating already. Can I ask you to lower the air conditioning for us or turn it on? Thank you. <laughs> All right. Any questions at this point um, about work? We haven't gotten to man yet. All we know from the creation account is that God works, which is so radical from the uh, ancient accounts in which the gods never work. The human beings work, right? Any questions? All right, so let us go on. So, as Tracy was saying, Imago Dei. So, uh, man is created Imago Dei. Very, very important concept. All right, so, uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, I believe it's the second passage, all the way in the bottom left. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So here's the question, right? If human beings are made in the image of God, what does that mean? It means that we're supposed to imitate God, right? It's like um, a son imitating his father, right? Everyone always says to me, Judah looks just like you. I always tell Judah, Judah, you're my son, that means you have to imitate me. <laughs> you look like me, you have to do what I do. Do you see how I'm reading books, Judah? <laughs> Read some books, right? Um, no, but the, the son takes after his father. Our Heavenly Father, we're made in His image, so we're supposed to imitate Him. The question is, how do we imitate the Father? What do we know about our Father? The creation account is that God is sitting in front of this pile of Legos and he's creating. He's making these these beautiful things, structure, order, purpose, beauty. And therefore, that's the answer. That's how we imitate the Father. And so it goes, and therefore work goes, it's not a necessary evil. It's not this toil and drudgery. It's this wonderful gift that the Father has given us where he says, I want you to do what I'm doing. Right? It, it goes to the very meaning and purpose of our existence. Look at Genesis 2.15. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden. What does it say? To work it and keep it. Right? So Eden was not just a test, uh, a testing ground for humanity, whether we would obey or not. That's true. But the Garden was also a place of human flourishing. And remember, Genesis 2.15 happens before the fall. So that work was part of paradise. Can I underscore that? Work was part of paradise. Work was an essential part of our creation design so that the Garden of Eden was heaven, not in spite of work, but because of work. Do you understand? So that when the world was good and right, human beings were laboring in the garden and it was our delight and joy. Look at Genesis uh, one twenty eight. It says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, "Be fru- Every word there is important. Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Right? How do we imitate God? God tells us, right? Be fruitful, be mul- multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. What is God saying? He's not merely saying increase in population. That's obviously going on. He's not merely saying, you know, spread out. But when he says fill the earth, he's saying fill the earth with my image. And remember, God is a creative working God. So he's saying go out to the whole world and do what I do. Right? God, right, he created the whole world as this giant pile of Legos. And he says, go do what I've been doing so that the whole world is this untamed wilderness of raw material. And he says, go and shape it, structure it, turn it into beauty, turn it into something useful, subdue and have dominion over creation means recapitulate the six days of creation as I've been doing, right? And 
that's an amazing thing. And when you understand that that's what's going on, you understand, therefore, that gardening is the main biblical paradigm for work. So let me put this down, right? Because this is important. Um, I became a homeowner like three years ago, and uh, I used to never care about uh, uh, landscaping, I guess, or like uh, the yard. And then, um, and then, uh, so we used to pay a gardener, and then uh, he would charge us like fifty dollars a month. And I literally saw him mow the lawn once a month for an hour. <laughs> so I was like, I could do that. <laughs> You're dismissed. I'll take over. <laughs> So I quickly realized he did earn his money because he was doing all kinds of things, obviously, that I wasn't looking at. But I actually discovered that I really enjoy gardening. I really enjoy, like, pruning, taking care of things, and um, growing things. It's very satisfying in a way that so much of life isn't, um, where input matches output. And this is very deep because... The, the paradigm of work that the Bible gives us is that it's gardening. And what does that tell us, right? Because God, uh, God tells man to keep the garden, work the garden, right? So here's what gardening is, is not. Gardening is not being a ranger of a nature, nature preserve. Because what's the, what's the goal of a ranger? The goal of a ranger is to leave the wilderness untouched, right? To preserve nature as it is. So gardening is not being a ranger nor is gardening strip mining. <laughs> what is strip mining? Where you exploit nature, you uglify it, you destroy it. If anyone's in the mining industry, I, I, no offense. Um, <laughs> so it's not strip mining, it's not being a ranger. What is gardening? Gardening is going into nature, you respect nature, you don't destroy it, you don't exploit it, but you don't leave it untouched. You rearrange it, you restructure it, into a form that is beautiful, life-giving, useful to humanity. And so what we see in the creation account is that God says, he plants this garden, the Garden of Eden. Right? He says, do you see what I've done? I've planted this garden. And then God says, now go and imitate me. You're my sons. Sons always imitate the father. I planted a garden. You go out and do exactly what I'm doing. And so what he's then commissioning us to do is he's saying all work is like gardening, right? All work is you're taking, right, the, the, what is without form and void. You're taking something that's sort of chaotic. You're taking unstructured brokenness and you're shaping it into beauty, organization, and so forth. And this is, and it goes further than that because it goes even deeper than that because the Garden of Eden was just the beginning. Because if you look at this, right, this is the whole earth, and God creates this little garden, Eden. It's beautiful. And then, what does he say? He says, he says, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it. What he's saying is he's saying, do you see this little, little patch of garden that I did? I want you to go out to the whole world and transform it into a garden. That's what he's saying, right? That human beings were commissioned to radiate outward and remake the whole world just like the Garden of Eden, so that the Garden of Eden was a prototype of God's intended future world. We're supposed to take the whole world and do it the same way. Because why doesn't God make the whole world a Garden of Eden? Because he leaves the majority of the work undone. Right? He leaves like, I don't know, 99% of the world undone. He creates this little garden. He says, now you do the rest. And you might say, oh, that sounds speculative. Right? And it's not. Because if you look at the end of the Bible, right? This is the beginning of the story. So if you go to the end of the Bible, you see that this is actually was our commission. Because when, when, what was Adam and Eve supposed to do? Let's look at Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21 is the end. It's the way that the world was always supposed to be. Right? And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, a tree of life, 
with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So some significant details there. First of all, it shows us that our ultimate destiny is a city, New Jerusalem. So some of you are saying, wait a minute, I thought you were supposed to say, I thought it's supposed to be a garden. Why are you saying it's a city? Because a lot of us think of gardens and city as opposite things, right? We think of the urban jungle, this concrete, ugly place. And we think of the garden as this sweet, flowering, water, refreshing place. But notice the way New Jerusalem is described. What, how is it described? Not as a concrete jungle, but as a garden city, right? In the middle of the city, there's a river, and we see the tree of life in the city, right? The tree of life, immediately, alarm bell should run off. Where was the tree of life the last time we saw it? We, it was in the Garden of Eden, and now the tree of life is in a city, right? And therefore, here's, the, here's my thesis, New Jerusalem is the Garden of Eden as it was always supposed to be, what humanity was always supposed to take it to. It's the, it's the Garden of Eden consummated and fulfilled finally. And therefore, the Garden, the commission that God gave to humanity is not just spread the Garden all over the world, but make the whole world into a Garden City. Right, cultivate and develop into a city, which means that's what it means: multiply and be fruitful. Right, so that we're supposed to become this hyper dense urbanity filled with people and creativity. Again, the commission is not to create nature preserves where nature is un- untouched. Right, but it's supposed to be filled with humanity living in harmony with nature into this beautiful city that's a garden as well. And, and this heavenly city is supposed to fill the whole earth. It's not printed in the bulletin for you, but let me read to you Revelation twenty one sixteen. Listen, the city lies four square. Its length is the same as its width. Um, and he measured the city with its with his rod twelve thousand stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. So, some math majors. When your length, height, and width are equal, what would that be? A square, okay? So, <laughs> okay, so the New Jerusalem is a cube, okay? Did, did you guys say square? It's a cube. <laughs> fail, fail math. <laughs> So the New Jerusalem is a perfect cube, right? And it's made of pure gold because the streets are made of gold, right? If you read the description of New Jerusalem, it's just gold. Everything is gold. When's the last time you saw a perfect cube of solid gold? This is gonna. This is a Bible test. Where in the Old Testament do you see that? Please don't disappoint me. Somebody knows the answer. You see it in the temple, in the Holy of Holies. Holy of Holies is a perfect cube, solid gold. What does that mean? It means the New Jerusalem is now, the, 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 the Holy of Holies is not a little room that's restricted that no one can enter. We're inside. We're living in the Holy of Holies, Right? And if you look at the dimensions of the whole, of the of the New Jerusalem, it says it's twelve thousand stadia, right? Stadia, where do you think the word stadia, well, the English word, where, where, stadium? That's right. So a stadia was a the length of a foot race in in the Greek world. It's about six hundred feet. Let me do the math for you. Twelve thousand stadia is a thousand four hundred miles, right? The United States, roughly 3,000 miles in length. So we're talking about a cube that if you were to plant it on the United States, is occupying half the U.S. It's a massive, mega city. It kind of looks like the Borg, right? But um, It's a massive, mega city, 3,000 cubic miles of urban landscape. Now, the ancient people did not know the actual size of the world. And the 12,000 stadia... Obviously, it's a representative number. It's just basically, see, a thousand basically, a thousand in the ancient language is huge number. It's like kind of our word for million, right? So you have 12, which is a perfect number. 
It's just basically a super big city. A city that will occupy the entire universe, right? We're supposed to make the whole world into the new Jerusalem. That was always our commission. And therefore, that tells us the meaning and purpose of our work, right? Is that we're supposed to bring creation under intense cultivation and development. We're supposed to build a city, right? And what takes a city? You need culture, you need music, you need medicine, you need all kinds of things. So city building, architecture, culture making, music, technology, research, development, all of this is what humanity was intended to do from the very beginning. It's what it means to image God. It means to imitate the Father. And that's the image that God, that the Bible gives us of work. Completely different than Club Med in the ancient world where the gods are just sipping martinis, right? Let me just add one more quick note, which is that the, 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 cre- the commission says, multiply and fill the earth. Um, so here we get to the good and needful work of child rearing. Because to fill the earth requires raising godly children. And I think here, let me honor the parents, because what does it take to raise a godly child? You don't just throw food at it in a cage, right? (laughs) Throw clothing at it, right? You got to (laughs) rear the child with physical care, moral and spiritual instruction, discipline, guidance. So you stay-at-home parents, you parents in general, This is what it means to image God. You're doing it. You're taking a little child, this mess without form and void, and you're shaping and creating this amazing human being, right, to to love God, to be useful to the world. And therefore, what's the thesis of the Bible? The thesis is that work is good. Work is a gift from God. To flourish, human beings were meant to, we were meant to work. That's what it means to be imago dei, because God works, and to deny, to not work is to deny who we are. This is why prolonged unemployment is psychologically devastating. Studies have shown that it's as traumatic as the death of a loved one. Why? Not just because you don't have money, right, but because we were meant to work. None of us were meant to be Paris Hilton, just living off of a trust trust fund, right? We were supposed to work, John 15, 17, but Jesus answered them, my father is working into now and I am working. Jesus affirms the goodness of work and therefore before the fall there was work. It was paradise not despite work but because of work and therefore because work is not a curse, it's woven into the very fabric of the universe and so we were meant to be creators, to be builders, to be artists. Let me give you a quick illustration and and, uh, we'll get to the last point. Christina recently read this book called Being Mortal by Atul Gawanda. It's sort of this book that's uh, getting a lot of uh, attention. Uh, and he's basically a medical doctor, and he's talking about how people die. And he's looking at elder care. And he says that they've done experiments where they'll separate in a nursing home two groups of elderly people. And one group, status quo. They'll just do the normal thing. They'll take care of them, make sure they're comfortable, provide for their needs. And then a second group, they gave a plant a potted plant, and they said to the the person, um, your responsibility is to take care of the plant and to water it. That's it. They said experiments show that the second group of, of, of patients not only lived much, much longer, they also reported higher levels of energy, happiness, meaning, and purpose in life because of a potted plant. Because you know why? And this is what Atul Gawanda says. He says, the whole way we do hospice care is, retar- is, is terrible. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to this word. Uh, is, is really uh, broken because he says, we basically say, how can we make you comfortable? How can we you know, take care of your every need? But that's not what makes, that's, we need human agency. We need to care for things. We need to be stewards. We need to be creative. And so caring for a little pot of plant helps. That's our purpose. That's our meaning. It's interesting, right? The experiment was, here's a little bit of a garden. And let me put it in the room here for you. Now do a little bit of gardening, and it gives them life, right? Um, Any questions before we go to the last point? Yes, Jeff. You say that work is good, but what about people who can't work? Ah. Like bedridden. Yeah, so not all work has to be physical work. Right. Um, 
um, my work is mostly not physical, right? So gardening is the is the paradigm. All human beings were meant to do something creative, something useful, something to create something beautiful. I think people even with severe physical disabilities or even mental disabilities can still contribute to the city building project that we are on. To the extent that we have disabilities and injuries, that's a tragedy. That's a result of the fall. I don't know if that helps. So a person that's in a coma. Yes, a person in a coma is not flourishing. I mean, not just because he's in a coma. That's a result of the fall. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a that's a fallenness. Any other questions? That's a great question. All right. So, last point. Where? How are we doing time? Oh, I'm doing so good. All right. (laughs) Therefore, let's talk about some application. Therefore, all work. And by the way, next week I'm going to talk about the brokenness of work. Because some of you are saying, oh, you make work sound so beautiful, so good. You should come to my workplace, right? <laughs> Do my job, then you'll know. Mm. So yes, work is beautiful, work is good. Notice we haven't hit the fall yet. Next week we'll hit the fall. What does the fall do to work? How do we redeem work in light of the fall? Okay, so all work. So here's the application then to what the Bible is saying. All work, therefore, all work, all work has dignity. All work is dignified, is valuable, and good. And let me draw two, two sub-applications to that, which is that, number one, we falsely privilege jobs with high pay and high prestige. I think this is especially the, a problem if you have immigrant parents. I had immigrant parents. Growing up, my immigrant parents told me, well-intentioned, that you only have a narrow set of jobs that are acceptable, son. Doctor, lawyer, engineer, business person. And we tend to denigrate manual work and work with low prestige, right? And which is understandable because a lot of times immigrants come to the United States, they can't have those high prestige jobs because they don't have the language skills, they don't have the necessary education. So they take, relatively speaking, low prestige jobs. They're they're working they're working and killing themselves so that we can have the opportunity to have these high prestige jobs. But that is a flawed perspective from a biblical standpoint. And I think that what we do is this. We say, okay, here's a spectrum of pay, prestige. And you know, some jobs have high pay, high prestige. Some jobs have low pay, low prestige. And the goal is to climb up the ladder. But notice, we're sons of the father. And what does the father do? I mean, what does what kind of jobs does God take? If you look in the Old Testament, God is a gardener. If you look in the New Testament, God is a carpenter. So these are both manual labor jobs, jobs with, relatively speaking, low prestige in our culture. And therefore, what does it tell us? It tells us this. Janitorial services is just as needful and beautiful and God-glorifying as being a medical doctor. Agricultural workers are just as valuable to society as IT professionals. And so we need to rethink, as Christians, the way we value work in terms, not in terms of pay or prestige. This is the worldly, secular way to think of things. We need to have a Christian perspective, which is we need to think about in terms of usefulness. How can I be useful to God? How can I be useful to humanity? How can I participate in this great, beautiful project of building the city, the city of God, right? And I think what that means, therefore, is that a lot of us, because we're, we're controlled by this paradigm, we're controlled by the paradigm, we're stuck in the wrong job. A lot of us are, con- are, are being controlled by pay and prestige, and so we go for whatever has the highest pay and highest prestige, regardless of how it, it actually fits us and suits us. Um, and I think that that's one of the great tragedies that's one of the great fallenness of humanity that some of us are not gardeners real actual gardeners some of us are not carpenters because we pass by that job even though we were really suited for it we could flourish and then do amazing city work 
because the world doesn't recognize that work with, with pay or prestige. Um, and, and let me just say that pay and prestige are functions of culture and economics. They're not functions of actual value and actual usefulness, okay, and importance. And so we need to recover a Christian theology of vocation. The, the root word of vocation is you know, vocare, Latin for to call, to be called. Um, it's the sense that God has called you to a profession. And I think this, 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 this concept of vocation is really helpful because it reorients our priorities from self-fulfillment to usefulness, right? And it's not to say that happiness isn't unimportant or your happiness isn't unimportant, but the question we should ask is what kind of happiness and what will make us truly happy? Happiness in what? Notice uh, 1 Corinthians 7, 17. Let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned him to, that the God is calling him to, to which God has called him, right? It's not to say that you can't change jobs if you feel you're being called, but 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 you have to ask, what is God? God has given me this... this uh, slate of skills and, and um, interests. What, what, how does God want me to utilize these things for his glory, for the good of all humanity, right? Not pay prestige. Um, therefore, you might say, okay, well, what criteria should we use to choose our profession? Um, here, let me just speak very, very quickly. I think there are three good criteria you should consider. First is your uh, skills and interests. Um, basically, you know, what are you good at? <laughs> um, what's suitable to you? The second question you should ask is, uh, what needs do you recognize in society? Uh, are there any glaring gaps? I think there are huge gaps. Um, I think if you look back to the financial crisis in 2008, you basically had this huge overweight of financial services because that's where all the pay and prestige was. And we have enormous gaps in society, right? What about preschool teachers and kindergarten teachers, right? There's an enormous need for that. What about um, elder care, you know, and, and so forth? And so what are the needs? What are some vital, vital missing holes in, in, the, in the city building project that you notice that nobody is doing or there's not a lot of people doing? So usefulness to others. And then finally, what's practical and feasible, obviously, if there's money involved, you... You can't just volunteer for the rest of your life. Um, so is there financial remuneration for work? And let me just say this. Of, of the three categories, in my opinion, this is the most negotiable. Because maybe you have a spouse. They make all the money or they make most of the money. Then you can, you can take a massive pay cut and do something really useful and good for the, for the world that suits your interests in, in which you'll be happy and you'll flourish. Any quick questions on that? I'm not a career counselor, so I'm just like a three-minute segment. <laughs> yes, Kristen. What do you tell the artist? I know so many art, like traditional fine artists yeah. who are singles. They don't have a spouse to support them. Yeah. Support them. I just don't know how to play. And I, a lot of them are my clients. They're, just, they're amazing, incredible yeah. artists. And they, and they really feel called to it, but they just can't do it because they can't. Yeah, so I think part of it is as a society, we need to shift our priorities as well. Because if you look at the creation account, the biblical worldview of work, um, beauty and creativeness is really treasured. God doesn't make ugly stuff. So we should shift our priorities, less material goods, more beauty and art and uh, you know, uh, um, social value. So maybe a shift in cultural values. But also, yes, as an artist, you do have to face the reality of what pays you. So... If, if something doesn't pay you, if you're not being rewarded, that could be a signal that you need to look for another a line of employment. Yeah. Because you, you, you can't be a martyr. I don't know if that helps. Yeah. Yes? What would you say about the difference between, obviously we all have careers that we do part of the day, but yeah. we also have other interests. Yes. So yes, so not all, yes, and that's a great point. Thank you, John. So not all work is salaried work, right? So, you know, uh, a lot of your interests and hobbies and things that you volunteer for can also fill out the spectrum of your gift sets that you can contribute to the world. 
how do we how do we do church? We only have three paid staff, right? But in fact, the labor force of the church is quite large because everyone's contributing, everyone's helping, everyone's participating. So yes, thank you. Is that where you? Where, yeah. Where? Yes, Jeff. When you say that all work is dignified, you're saying the way God made it and not what you see in the world. That's right. That's right. Some work is denigrated. Some work we look down on as beneath us, but that's a pagan worldview. Oh, right? no, but like there's work that's inherently sinful then. Yes. No pimping. No <laughs> no drug dealing. Because that's destructive. That's exploitative. You're 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 stomping on people for your own you know, enumeration. Um, here's an interesting question. What about, like, being a professional gambler? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I would bias towards, that's not very useful. Um, I, I don't have a definitive opinion. I, no one's a professional gambler in here, right? Okay. How about something that's a little bit more blurred, like, if mm. you're in the mining industry or you're, or you're in the oil and gas industry, where yeah. You're very proud on the one end, you're doing really great stuff. Yes. But on the other end, you're exploiting the world and it's all this resources. Sure. So I think, like, as a Christian, you're thinking about bigger things than pay. And you're thinking about bigger things than what can I get out of it, right? Like, um, I think the 2008 financial crisis was basically there was a big pile of money on a table and somebody turned off the lights. And then when somebody turned the ba- lights back on, the money was gone. Because basically people just grab what they can, right? Get what you can. I think uh, to be a Christian in this world means that you're not just thinking about your own benefit, your own pay. You're thinking about what serves the world. What benefits the world? That's a very complicated question, though, right? Like, uh, you know, if you're, in the mid- if you're in 2005 and you're doing uh, 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 mortgage loans, is there a way for you to know? I don't know. Right, But you have to be asking yourself these questions. Is my work serving a purpose and a use to this world, or is it just exploiting the world? And if it's exploiting the world, I would really suggest look for another line of work or try to influence your company's vision to move towards social value, social good, rather than just grabbing all the money on the table while you, while you have it. Um, so I know some of us here are in school. Yes. So like in terms of what would you say to like someone who's like in school pursuing yeah, so you're training, you're adding skills to get ready to work and contribute. And I think like the way you think about going to school should be informed by the Christian paradigm, right, in terms of how can I be of use. And even the way, like, like, um, like when Christina was in law school, right, the third year is without uh, actual meaning and purpose in the sense that you have your job by the end of your second year. But you should not think of it in terms of only pay and prestige. Think about it in terms of your training, especially. I mean, you should always think about it as, um, I'm not just going to do the minimal work that gets me the pay. I'm going to go above and beyond and, and do excellent stuff because what I'm going to do is going to serve people. It's going to help people, right? So what would you say in terms of like couples? So you're talking about like money for least negotiable one, for the most negotiable one. What if you have a couple that, one, you feel that your needs and your skills Yeah. So what would you say in terms of that? Because in one couple of years, I think, I'm super tired, I make more money for this house, I'm taking care of more of this house. And then in your end, you're like, but I'm saving the world. Yeah, so, so, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, so I think no one should save the world and the other person schleps and makes the dough. Um, I think it, le- it leads to my second point, which is that um, you can think of all work, even work that has high pay. See, the problem with pay being the highest motivation is that it crowds out your perspective on the value of that work itself. You could be a high-paid uh, professional, please hear this, and you can serve the world and honor God. Um, Preston? So I've heard the perspective that, um, I, I forget if it's like a secular perspective, yeah. secular perspective or Christian, but they said, if you want to do the most good for the world, yeah. Really, what you should do is take that high-paying finance job or whatever, yeah. and then just be generous with your money. Because if you look at what's going to happen, you know, as opposed to like taking a nonprofit job where it's low pay or something, someone else is going to come in and fill that position. But yeah. if you come in and take that high-paying finance job, and then you're generous with your money, yeah. in a sense, you're actually doing a lot of good for the world. That 
That's true, um, and you should be generous. Um, and that is a great way to serve the world, serve the kingdom of God, is by being generous. Um, but I would still argue that you shouldn't take a job and say, like, I remember um, I, I used to know somebody who said, Lord, please allow me to tithe a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is that a really pious prayer, right? I think like um, the, the, you should say, I want to do what suits me, what I really enjoy and makes me happy. Because that's important too, right? What, what fills this need in the world. And if it has high pay, that's a great luck bonus almost. You just happen to stumble on this job that pays a lot. Now be generous with it. But I don't think that should be the driving consideration. Um, let me close with this last point. Um, the second application is that there's no real distinction between Christian and secular work. I think we tend to denigrate non-ministry work as less meaningful. Can I just say this? Er- virtually every godly man that I've ever talked to has thought about ministry going to seminary. And I think that is very commendable because what they're saying is they want to honor their God with their life and, and do meaningful work. But can I just say this? Both ministry, church work, and secular work, both honor God and help serve the world. And can I just tell you, the ministry work can be full of ego and sin. Please believe me. And so what distinguishes ministry work from secular work is your specific role and task and your skill sets and requires gifts. And another commendable impulse that I see a lot of times is you have a job, you have this company, right? And you want to put a little cross somewhere or like a little hidden Bible verse like In-N-Out Burgers or something. I think that's a really commendable impulse because you're saying, I want to honor God and I want to say that this In-N-Out Burger is ultimately for the glory of God. That's really great. But the, there's a false idea behind that, which is that the way you honor God is by putting a Christian label on it. When good work done excellently in service to others, that by itself honors God. An excellent, delicious, healthy hamburger, that's to the glory of God. You don't have to put a little hidden cross on the meat patty for it to be for the Lord. Let me, let me just cite the example of, of Lecrae. Lecrae is a Christian hip-hop artist. He has this great quote in Christianity Today. He says, I am not a Christian rapper. He says, I'm a rapper who happens to be a Christian. You might say, well, what's the difference? I think there's an enormous difference. What he's saying is that I don't have to only sing about Christian things, you know, rap praise songs, in other words. He says, I can rap about anything. One of the songs that I I really like, he rapped about his uh, girlfriend or his fiancée, right, or proposing to her, or something like that, right? It's anything done with beauty, with excellence, with usefulness and purposefulness to others, that honors God. You don't have to make it a Christian thing to to satisfy that requirement. All right. I'm going to close the class. I'm sorry. We ran out of time. All right. It happened. It always happens. Okay. Heavenly Father, this is such an important subject because we do work more than we do anything else in our lives. We put in more hours into it. Help us not to underappreciate work. Help us not to overappreciate work, but help us to have a godly perspective, a self-sacrificial perspective, um, and, and, and so many of us are at the young stage in our lives, in our 20s and 30s, and we're still trying to figure out what to do with our, with our lives. Lord, give us wisdom. Help us to seek insight and counsel from our Christian friends, from Christian community. Help us to hear your calling, to find our vocation, so that we can be useful for you and, and, and to the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, everyone.